Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And they were going along the road. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes has holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you, Richard. No more kids? Okay, if you're a kid, you can leave. Sorry. Um, let me pray one more time. Uh, Father, we thank you that we can uh, know you. Thank you for your word uh, that tells us who you are and tells us who we are. Um, show us what it means to be part of your kingdom this morning. Um, Spirit, be at work. Would you help us? Would you teach us? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so last week I used Tolkien's Lord of the Rings to kind of help make sense of the shape of Luke's storytelling um, of the life of Jesus. Uh, similar to the Lord of the Rings story, there's, there's been this large section. Um, give me that slide. Yes, the kind of part two has been this section that has been set primarily within this, this region of, of Galilee. Luke's been telling us about the beginnings of Jesus' ministry in and around that area. Um, it's been amazing, right? We've seen some, some really powerful demonstrations of, of Jesus' identity as God in the flesh, uh, the, the promised Savior sent to redeem humanity. Uh, that section is filled with many miracles. Um, we, we, we've gotten to see some conversations, these, um, these narratives that focus on individuals, and you see Jesus interact with them. And all through all of those things, the miracles and the interactions, we've gotten this really um, beautiful picture of who he is, um, the Son of God. Uh, but similar to the Tolkien story, uh, part three in, in Luke's story, there's this section that, that kind of takes place on the road as they are journeying from one place to the next. And really over the next 10 chapters of Luke's gospel, um, He'll tell us what happens on this journey. I'll save that for another week. But really what we see is Jesus turns up the heat in the discipleship of his followers. You'll notice that this section is different, okay? Be prepared for that. The miracles are scarce. There's 13 miracles in the Galilee section. There's not as many in the kind of part three uh, there will be narratives that, that focus on individuals, but even they are relatively sparse. What will dominate this next section is the sayings and the parables of Jesus. 
Um, the, the, there's the presence of 17 parables alone show us that, that teaching is Jesus' main concern on this journey. He, he's preparing his disciples for the approaching reality of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's, he's turning up the heat for his discipleship uh, as they make their way to the destination for Jesus to accomplish his reason for coming to earth in the first place. That that Jesus came for a reason, for, for a sole reason. Um, he's been healing many, he's been, he's been preaching about the kingdom, but all of those things center in on his sole purpose for coming. In fact, the, whole, the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it, it, it focuses in on this single event that took place in Jerusalem, which is why in verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, um, the most literal rendering of that phrase, when the days drew near, is when it was time to fulfill, or, or the time was getting close to fulfill, right? So there's something to fulfill. It's, it's telling us that, that what is coming, what will happen in Jerusalem, it does not happen by accident. It, it, it has been the plan for a very long time. And what is waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem, God has made this plan that he is working out through Jesus. He has these promises that he needs to keep, that he will keep, and he's going to do that through this plan. And it's getting close to fulfilling that. It's time. So when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, sometimes it's helpful to read the story as if you don't know the ending. I know that's really hard for us. Um, so let's read it and ask, well, what's he referring to? He's, he's being taken up. What's, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? It sounds like something important is going to happen. Um, so far in Luke's gospel, he's given us many clues, right? Um, some of them is black and white, as Jesus saying uh, twice in this chapter alone, in chapter 9, that, um, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Um, in fact, in verse 22, he says it as clearly as this. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So that's not really a clue. Okay, that's just foretelling. Here's what's going to happen. Um, he's making it very clear what will happen. Um, but, but as to what, he's, what the event is going to accomplish, maybe one of the, the most poignant sign markers that, that Luke has given us is one we looked at a few verses earlier in the, the transfiguration of Jesus in verses, kind of starting in verse 28. Remember that, that conversation that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah. Um, you remember that? I, I touched on this briefly, but especially for Luke's Jewish readers, this conversation that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah, it would have been such a remarkable signpost for what was ahead. Um, ignore for a minute that Jesus is having a conversation <laughs> with Moses, who had died 1,500 years previously, and with Elijah, who had been taken up 800 years ago. Okay, so somehow those Old Testament heroes of the faith are alive still. There's, there's something significant and heavenly at work here. Uh, but the main point that we're meant to see is, is what these two uh, men are conversing with Jesus about. Um, someone pointed out to me recently that, that this would have been Moses' first time setting foot in the promised land. Okay? Remember, he, he died before uh, bringing the, 
the, the children of Israel in. Um, so they would have had a lot to, lot to talk about. He would have had a lot of questions that he maybe wanted to ask Jesus. But, but Luke tells us that they, they had a single topic of conversation, which was the departure that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Um, I, I mentioned that word for departure is literally exodus. They're discussing the exodus, not that Moses had led, but an exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And every reader is meant to connect Moses with the Exodus, right? And Moses was the, the greatest Old Testament hero that, that God worked through to, to lead his people out of their bondage to Egypt. And, and the Exodus story is, it's meant to give us the template for salvation, right? It says, this is how God saves. And, and it was amazing. It was the, 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 the basis of the, the Jewish identity, but it was mere signpost itself, Right? It was an example. It was a foreshadow. It was pointing to an even greater uh, exodus to come, which is precisely what they were talking to Jesus about. It's nearly time for this final exodus. Um, you see, in eternity's past, there's a plan that was made for the redemption of a sinful humanity. And Elijah and Moses and Jesus were discussing that plan that Jesus was about to go and accomplish in Jerusalem, right? And, and so this, this exodus is the sole reason that Jesus has come to earth, to lead his people out of their bondage to sin and death. And the way that he will accomplish this exodus is, is not by the death of the firstborn sons of their captives, of their enemies, but by his very own death. In, in this exodus, the wrath of God will not pass over the firstborn of Israel. It will fall directly on him, even though he doesn't deserve it. And you see, at the very heart of Luke's gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, sent to deliver a hopeless humanity from their bondage to sin and death. He's come to seek and save the lost. And the very center of all that Jesus does to accomplish this mission is his death on a cross, where he, he pays the penalty for the sins of his people. And it's only through his sacrifice, it's only through his blood that we find access into the eternal promised land, right? It's only through Jesus that we have access into God's presence. And verse 51 says, the time was drawing near for that plan to be fulfilled. And so Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to accomplish it. When it says he, he set his face, it means he's determined, right? Nothing will get in his way. No, no rejection, no, no oppression, no opposition, no, no level of anxiety for the suffering that is to come is going to get in his way of going to the cross. He sets his face to it. And yet, all of those things are what lay ahead for him, right? Rejection, opposition, suffering. And we see that in today's text. And so along the journey, as he teaches his disciples, what he's doing is he's preparing them for what it means to follow him. And in this passage, Jesus doesn't really pull any punches. He doesn't try to paint a rosier picture. He's very clear when he's telling them what it means to follow him, that it's a costly discipleship. In following Jesus, you have everything to gain, but it will cost you everything. And, and here's this, this dual truth 
for what it means to be in God's kingdom, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and this is the main idea that I want you to take away with and, and even wrestle with, this dual truth that, that two things that are absolutely true about being a follower of Jesus, a Christian, is you cannot earn your salvation, but it will cost you everything. You, you cannot earn your salvation. You, you, you do not earn, you do not work for, you do not pay your way into the kingdom of God but it will cost you everything. That's a difficult truth to wrap our minds around, isn't it? How can something be free and yet cost you everything? But it's the message of God in the New Testament about life in his kingdom. You cannot earn your way in, but it will cost you everything. There's a single doorway into the kingdom, and that's through the cross of Jesus. Okay, It's only through his work that you enter in. Not your work, but his work. It's by his death it's by his sacrifice, by his blood, that we are counted as righteous. He has done all the work. He's, he's paid the penalty for all of your sins. His was a final and complete sacrifice. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? By what are you saved? By grace. By grace are you saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, and, and gifts are free, okay? It's not as a result of works. This isn't like Santa Claus, okay? If you're naughty or nice, you might, this has nothing, you're naughty, that's all you are. <laughs> but the gift is grace. Salvation is, is a gift. Paul says you were dead in your sins. You're dead in your sins, and, and dead people can't save themselves, right? So dead people can, can be dead, that's what they're good at. That's all they're good at, is, is death and decomposing. Lifeless, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says we were made alive together with Christ. That's the first truth. You cannot earn your salvation any more than a dead person can make themselves get up to walk. It's by grace that he saved you. It's by grace that he raised you up. It's a gift that you cannot earn, that you do not pay for, ever. But what's also true about following Jesus is it will cost you everything. And because following Jesus means following the path of our teacher, of our, of our savior, and the path of Jesus is one of rejection and opposition and suffering. And we learned this a few weeks ago that first what comes is suffering, then comes glory. Okay, first comes the cross and then comes the crown. That's the way of Jesus, and Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that this is what it looks like to follow him. It will cost you everything. You must be willing to put him and his kingdom first in your life. By grace are you saved, friends, but following Jesus will cost you everything. And Jesus has told his disciples that back in chapter 9, verse 24, just a few verses before, whoever would save his life will lose it, Whoever clings to his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's this upside down nature of the kingdom of God, right? It's in the surrendering of it all, you have everything to gain in Jesus. In losing it all, when, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, when you consider everything as loss for the sake of Christ, you have everything to gain. Paul says that it's, it's when he learned to comparatively view 
everything besides knowing and following Jesus as loss, even count these, everything else as rubbish. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you see that, that dual truth in Paul's statement there? That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, by grace you have been saved, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, entering into the life of Jesus, entering into this costly discipleship, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, now that word attain, it doesn't mean to, to earn, it means to come to, it means to arrive at. Okay, so this is Paul who wrote that by grace you have been saved, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, but he says by following Jesus and by knowing Christ above everything else in his life, he actually gains everything. He arrives at resurrection from the dead, eternal life. Friends, you cannot earn your salvation, but it will cost you everything. Jesus has come to proclaim the kingdom of God, to invite sinners to freely enter into his kingdom through faith in him, right? Through the repentance of your sin, through the acceptance of his grace. But what he's also about to, and what he's also about to accomplish in Jerusalem, he also wants to make it abundantly clear for everyone that desires to follow him, that to follow him means putting him very first in your life. And he's not wanting to debate and switch any, any potential followers, okay? He's, he wants to be very clear from the start. And he does this a couple times through Luke's gospel. You'll see him doing it in, in an even more shocking way in, in chapter 14. But he wants potential followers to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that. More than you could ever know, he loves you. He, he's come to die for you and to offer you forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with him but he also wants you to first consider the cost of following him. He must come first in your life. And this is the message that we see through the next section as we, as we finish off chapter nine this morning. Again, verse 51. As the days drew near for him to be taken up, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so they're in Galilee, and to, to make it to Jerusalem, you must then go south. Um, and, and so he plans to go south right? But just south is this region called Galilee. I think I have a, um, a, a map. There you go. So you have Galilee at the top, and then just under Galilee is Samaria, okay? So to understand what, what's happening in this next section, you have to understand who the Samaritans are. Uh, Samaria was, was originally the name of the capital of the, the northern kingdom uh, of, of Israel, and the Samaritans were this mixed race of pure-blooded Israelites um, and non-Israelite blood. And they were despised by the, the pure-blooded Israelites because they uh, believed that the Samaritans compromised on the faith when they intermarried with non-Jews after they were brought back from captivity by the Assyrians. And, and so pure-blooded Jews despised the half-breed Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans worshipped not at Mount Zion, the temple there, they worshiped at their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Um, they also had their, like a Samaritan version of the Torah. So the, 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 the real Israelites looked on them and despised them. And their hatred of Samarita, Samaritans ran so deep that 
even though it, it took three days to, to pass through Samaria, um, most Jews would often prefer to take a longer route and, and go around it and not even go through Samaria. But Jesus challenges this attitude and he sends some messengers straight into Samaria uh, to make preparations for him, we're told. Probably means to arrange uh, housing, um, maybe to hand out some flyers for a meeting or something like that. that, that here's, here's Jesus coming and his, he sends his disciples uh, to, to make arrangements for his arrival. Um, Jesus does not take the long way around Samaria. He, he chooses to go through it. Why? Because his, his message of the gospel, his message of grace is for everyone. It, it's even for them, even the most despised. His offer of grace was not just for good Jews, but for all. And if you fast forward into the book of Acts, uh, Jesus includes Samaria uh, in, in this, this mission for these uh, gospel witnesses to go out, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And, and you'll see in chapter 8 that Philip eventually goes to Samaria and revival breaks out. So they eventually do, um, some of them, accept uh, Jesus as Lord, but not yet, okay? Right, because verse 53 says the people did not receive him. They didn't receive Jesus. So you see here, uh, on essentially day one of the journey, the path of Jesus is rejection. They, they did not receive him. And we're told why is because he set his face to go to Jerusalem, right? So remember Samaria, they rejected Jerusalem as the, as the place where God should be worshipped. So, so to follow Jesus to Jerusalem was too high a cost. So you, you even begin to see the, the costliness of discipleship here. It's too, too much for them, too high a cost, so they reject him. And verse 54 says, And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's a, that's, that's a strong response, okay? Um, just in the previous passage, in verse 49 to 50, we see Jesus rebuke John for his sin of exclusivity. And, and here we see he hasn't learned his, his lesson yet. Um, in fact, his exclusivity has, has worsened considerably. So James and John, whom Jesus had given the nickname the Sons of Thunder, and you see here why, they say, Lord, will we rain down fire from heaven and consume them? So remember the disciples, they were just arguing uh, about greatness in the kingdom of God. In their minds... God's kingdom of power has finally come, and this kingdom will overthrow anyone who is against them, and their desire is to be great in this kingdom of power, which is why James and John, their initial reaction is to call down fire to consume these rejectors of God's kingdom. They still haven't learned what the kingdom is about. They need discipleship. And what's Jesus' response, his reaction to this whole situation Verse 55 says, he turned and rebuked them. Who does he rebuke? The Samaritans for rejecting him? His, he rebukes James and John for not understanding what their mission is right now. He has not come to earth this time for judgment, but to offer his message of grace. And you'll see there, there, are, there are warnings of judgment in Jesus' ministry, but, but the judgment itself will come later, right? What people decide on who Jesus is, is all important, 
Okay, their decision to either reject Jesus or accept him, it will have eternal consequences, but not yet. Jesus is graciously giving the Samaritans more time to reflect on their decision. This visit to earth is not for judgment, but for the extending of his gospel message of grace. Now's the time for hope. Now's the time for, for extensions of grace, and so he gives them time to respond to the kingdom and, and respond to his message. Some of them eventually do in, chapter, in Acts chapter 8. He gives them time, and he, and he is graciously giving you time. Time to, to respond to his invitation, to accept him as Lord and Savior and enter into his kingdom. But friends, let me lovingly tell you there's a time limit. Keep reading through, the, through, this, through this book and you see that Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he, he will come for judgment. And he'll separate those who have accepted him with those who have rejected him. But it's not time yet. Okay, there, there, there's time. We don't know how much time, so don't delay. So Jesus rebukes not yet the Samaritans for rejecting him. He rebukes his disciples for not extending grace. And verse 57 tells us that they went on to another village. The mission continues, that the journey goes on. Are you getting a better picture, a clearer picture of who Jesus is, of what his kingdom is, is like, and really what the mission of his disciples, even us today, is all about? Not, not, to, not to go out and, and judge, but to go out and extend his message of grace. Um, in the following verses in 50, 57 of 62, um, we see even more about what it means to follow Jesus, about what is required. And Jesus gives us some pretty straight talk about the nature of following him, the costliness of discipleship. In this next section, we have three interactions with three uh, potential followers of Jesus and Jesus. And in his three responses, we learn a lot about the, the costly nature of following him. Um, so let's take a look at these interactions. Verse 57, person one, uh, says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I love, love this person's zeal, okay? Have you ever said anything like that to Jesus? I have. Probably like a youth camp on a Thursday night around a fire. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I'll give anything. Jesus' response reminds me of this popular meme going around. The, Are you sure about that guy? Let me see it. That guy? Have you seen that one? You sure about that? You sure about that? Okay, take him down. Um, Jesus is, I think he's delighted with this person's sentiment um, because this is exactly what is required, right? Jesus must come first over everything in your life. I'll go wherever you go, Jesus. Even to Samaria, even to the most despised places. And Jesus says, without snark, are you sure about that? Before making that statement, before making that commitment, let me tell you about my life. And in verse 58, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's, he's, 
he's telling them that the path of following Jesus, it's not easy and comfortable. For ultimately, Jesus is not at home in this world. And as a follower of Jesus, you will never be at home in this world. Does Jesus want you to enjoy your quick life on earth? Absolutely. Absolutely, to the, to the full. But he wants you to know that this is not your home. That this is not where you are to store up your riches. This is not where those things are to come, earthly security. Those things are to come, and you will enjoy them forever. But this life here right now, this is not your home. There will actually be experiences in your life like what just happened in Samaria, rejection. We don't want you here. Go away. Be ready for those. To follow Jesus means to walk in his path of rejection, opposition, and suffering for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus wants to make that very clear to this zealous disciple. Verse 59, the second disciple responds to Jesus' call to follow him by saying, well, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Um, so in this interaction, Jesus calls this person to follow him, and the invitee is keen. He's up for it, but he postpones his following because of a family emergency. So his, his father has either just died or is close to dying, and he needs to go bury him. And in order to understand fully what Jesus is saying here, you, you must know that, especially in a kind of Jewish rabbi disciple culture, if ever there was a good exemption of service, this is it, okay? Because one of the, the, the highest responsibilities in life, one of the highest callings, the highest priorities for a young man is to bury his father. Proper burial of the dead, especially of your father, was a Jewish ethical priority, in short, we're meant to read this guy's reply as a reasonable excuse. And, but Jesus' response to him in verse 60 is, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Is Jesus being harsh? D does Jesus despise the tradition of proper, properly burying the dead? Is Jesus rejecting the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother? Of course not. That, that doesn't line up with who Jesus is. It doesn't line up with his character, with him being the fulfillment of the Old Testament law himself. Jesus is not de-emphasizing familial responsibility. Rather, he uses this, this man's high calling to bury his father, to contrast an even higher calling of following him. And Jesus often uses striking language, uh, sometimes even hyperbole to make a point. He wants us to know that there is no higher calling than following after him. In his teachings, one of, one of his favorite tools to use is the lesser to greater argument. And, and that's exactly what he's doing here. So what's so striking about his argument is is that the lesser of the arguments is such a high calling. It's such a high responsibility, which means that his, his example of the, the greater responsibility is even higher. R.C. Sproul wrote, for Jesus to call someone to not go home to bury their father would require another calling so high, so holy, so important, 
that it would make the burial of one's own father pale in significance. He's not saying that burying the father is unimportant. He's just saying that following him is far more important. There's no higher calling than following Jesus. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Go proclaim the kingdom of God. I think what he's, he says that in order to drive his point about the supreme importance of following him and proclaiming the kingdom home even further. He's making a point about physical death and spiritual death. Let, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying there's a physical death in this world and there's a spiritual death. A, a physical death is one that every single person, everyone in this room will face. You will all die. There is no hope of escaping that death. But there's a death that you can't avoid. There's an even greater death, a spiritual death, that there is hope. It's possible to escape the eternal death, and the only hope of escaping that greater death lies in the cross of Jesus. So, he says, make proclaiming the gospel your highest priority. It's another lesser to greater argument. Physical death or spiritual death, which is more important? Jesus says there is no greater honor, there's no higher calling than proclaiming the gospel, the hope for those who are spiritually dying. Do we understand this, church? Do we feel the importance of this calling? There are people out there that are lost, that are dying, and they're going to hell. Jesus is their only hope, and they need to hear that gospel message. There's no higher calling than proclaiming that message. Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the gospel. Lord, forgive us for losing sight of the importance of this highest calling. Finally, the third person in verse 61, he says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Um, Another reasonable request, right? Um, Honoring your family by saying farewell seems like a decent thing to do. Okay, no Irish goodbyes. Okay, where's where's John? I I think he's slipped out the back door. I think he's maybe going to follow Jesus. He seems he's not wanting to do that. He's trying to avoid that. So again, Jesus wants to stress the importance, though, of making following him your, your top priority before anything else even your family. So, so the, the, the honoring of the family wasn't the issue. The, the issue was the, the yes but in his sentence, which is the, the same as the previous person, right? I'll follow you, but, but let me do this first. I'll follow you, but not today, maybe tomorrow. Because following you, as important as I see that it is, it isn't my top priority today. And Jesus' reply, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's using an an agricultural example to make his point. Um, Any farmers in the room? Some sons and daughters of farmers, I'm sure. Um, Plowing a field 
There's, there's nothing more important than, than plowing a straight line, okay? And, and, and at least in Jesus' day, I'm sure they have like laser-guided tractors and things like that today. Um, at least in Jesus' day, when you plowed with an ox, um, you cannot keep going in the right direction if you're looking over your shoulder. Unless your eyes are kept forward, you will inevitably swerve in the wrong direction. So Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Oh, that's so good. Great. But you must keep your eyes on me. You must make me your top priority over everything. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jonathan Edwards says that the seeking of the kingdom is the chief business of the Christian. Seeking the kingdom, it must come first in your life. It, it, it must be your identity, right? It, your identity cannot come from your job. It cannot come from a relationship. It cannot come from a political leaning. It can only come from Jesus. If anything else is your identity, you will absolutely swerve off in a dangerous direction. Seek first the kingdom of God. It must be your chief business. It must be the chief business of, of every Christian, okay? Not just the ones who get paid to do it, right? Everybody, seek first the kingdom of God. Um, nearly done, but listen to this. Don't get caught up in the external things of these requests, okay? Is Jesus saying burying your father is bad? Is, is it bad to say goodbye to your family? Listen, that's not the point. Jesus isn't concerned with the external. Jesus is always, always, always concerned with the internal desires of your heart. And that's what he's trying to pull out of these potential disciples. Right? He's saying, I must be your first love. You must love me more than your dying father. You must love me more than your family who you care so deeply about. You must love me more than your friends. You must love me more than your reputation. You must love me more than your career. You must love me more than anything in this world. Jesus is called a discipleship. It must take precedence over everything else in your life. Is that true for you today? Christian, where is your heart lining up in these stories? Are you like one of these people who say, man, Jesus, I love you and I'll, I'll follow you anywhere, but, but, but first let me take care of this. First let me see how this works out. Friends, Jesus demands to be your first love. Seeking his kingdom must be your greatest concern. Listen, there's a positive side to this, right? Because once he does come first in your life, only then will you truly be able to serve and proclaim the kingdom and actually love in every other part of your life, okay? We, we give this example during our, our child dedications here. We, we tell the parents and we tell the rest of the church family, the only way to love your children fully is to not love them more than you love Jesus. The only way to love them truly and fully is to love Jesus more than them. 
Only then will you be able to offer them and to show them real gospel message, real gospel hope, life in the kingdom. Do you see that? Only when loving and following Jesus as as your first love, as your top priority, do we actually live out the the true Imago Dei, the the image of God that you were created for. And that's when human flourishing takes place. That's when real love is experienced in our relationships. Do you see that? When Jesus is first in your life. But I don't want to lose the cost of discipleship side of things, because that's Jesus' main point, isn't it? Yeah, there's a positive side, but, but there's also a side that says, by loving him most, will you lose things in this life? But by showing allegiance to Jesus, you'll experience rejection and sorrow and opposition at times. There might be times when you don't get a job or you don't get a promotion because you've chosen to seek the kingdom first. There might be times when you, when you lose a relationship because you've chosen to seek the kingdom first. You've chosen to seek his righteousness. There are literally people in the world who are losing their lives because they are choosing to seek the kingdom first. What does this look like in your life? Listen to me. By grace are you saved. You cannot earn your way into the kingdom, but it will cost you everything. It's really important to understand both of those truths. I love the first one, (laughs) all right? Love the first one, don't you? By grace are you saved through faith. It's this gift of God. Amen. I want us to rest in that. I want us to revel in that. I want to preach that to you every Sunday. Hopefully you know that. Hopefully you receive that. God loves you. He loves you despite your failures. Out of the richness of his mercy, because of his great love for you, he died for you to give you a life that you could never earn. We must understand that truth. The only other option is to live a life of legalism, okay? Which is an exhausting, uh, never-ending, hamster wheel kind of a life of trying to earn God's favor. You'll never get anywhere with that. It's only by accepting his grace for your salvation. We must understand the doctrine of grace. But we must also understand that following Jesus will cost you everything. You must be willing to forsake the things of this world in order to put Jesus first, in order to seek his kingdom first. This is the path of Jesus. And so just as we finish, a couple minutes left, the big question is how is it possible, right? How is it possible to do that second part? Well, you must understand that these two truths are, are circular in a way. Okay, the, the, the second truth, it's only possible because of the first. The, the only way that we will be able to surrender it all is by looking to the cross of Jesus. He knows you won't be perfect in this. Okay, he knows we will fail at times, which is why we must always look to the cross because it's there that Jesus paid for your sins, past, present, and future, 
right? But, but that perfect forgiveness of sins, if you accept that truth, and that's the basis of your life, and it's real in your life, it should lead you to forsaking the things of this world and seeking his kingdom first. But when living the second truth, you must always look back at the first. You must always be shaped by the first, right? Because of the gospel, because of the grace in your life, by grace you have been saved, because of the the blood of Christ, which takes away your guilt, only by remembering the cross can we then choose to forsake the things of this world and to seek his kingdom first. It's this gospel-shaped life. Right? It's this gospel-informed way of living. We follow the path of Jesus, and the path of Jesus is Jesus forsook it all in order to love you and to make a way for you into the kingdom. He forsook it all, and it's only by looking to him, it's only by looking to the cross that we are able to fully live out those identities and to die to our flesh. We need the cross in order to live this life. And that's exactly what was true for the disciples, right? That, that, that first person, I'll follow you anywhere, that's, that sounds like Peter, right? Peter said, that I'll follow you anywhere. I will never deny you. And he did. Totally failed. Total denial of Jesus, three times. He couldn't live out the second part until after the cross of Jesus, until after he could look to the cross, until after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to abide in him. That's the only way to live out the second part. After the Holy Spirit indwells him, right? After the Holy Spirit indwells his people, they were then able to uh, fall forward and to live this out kind of one step at a time. They still failed from time to time, but they remembered the cross. The disciples kept their eyes on Jesus. They remembered his forgiveness. They remembered his acceptance, his grace, and then they carried on. That's the only way forward. It's the only way to live out the second truth. And so here's where we can go terribly wrong. As we think the first truth is something that he does, and then the second truth is something that we do. There's a part that we play, absolutely, But in the end, the first truth is something that he does, and the second truth is something that he does. It's all by grace. It's all by his power, not by ours. It's all by his working in and through us, giving us the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus does it all. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the best news? Yes, you are part of this. Yes, it is difficult, but he promises to give you the power to do it. He's he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to send the Holy Spirit to indwell in you and and work in you. He's promised to pour his power into your life. Friends, our job is just to surrender. Our job is simply to be a branch that stays connected to the vine. Jesus, the vine, supplies the power. We We just need to remain with him. We need to abide in him. We need to keep our eyes on him. We need to listen to him. We need to receive him. We need to make him our first love. And right there, something powerful happens, right? Right there, he he actually empowers you to do the second truth. It's all about Jesus, friends. You see how these last few weeks connected? Behold the glory of Jesus. Huge view of who Jesus is humble understanding of who you are 
and you're able to live this life of love, this life of surrender, this costly discipleship, behold the glory of Jesus. Behold the glory of the cross of Jesus. If you keep doing that, um, we'll make it to the end, I promise. Let's stand and pray. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and, and take a moment to reflect. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into the kingdom, to earn his love, to earn your salvation. Um, just, take a, just take a minute and, and, and thank the Lord for that and praise him for what he's done for you. Even while you were dead in your sins, because of his rich mercy, because of his great love for you, he died and he brought you to life. Thank you, Lord. And reflect for a minute on that second truth. Um, Jesus demands to be your first love. Following him will cost you everything. If you're anything like me, you have failed completely at that at some point this week. Maybe at several times this week. Which is why at the end of every Sunday gathering, we take a meal. And we revel in his grace. We revel in his forgiveness, in his acceptance, in our identity as sons and daughters of God. We come to him. We fix our eyes on him. We receive his power. We enjoy his special presence during this meal. And we go out and we seek the kingdom. That's what it looks like. Thank you, Lord, that you you do it all. Before we ever would have any thought to love you and to come to you, you made a plan to seek us out to come into this world and chase us down and to pay for our sins yourself and to invite us into your kingdom. Lord, I pray for anyone who hasn't done that, um, that they would do that today. They would say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for dying on my behalf. And that's what it looks like. Surrender to you. Lord, for those who have been following you for a long time and we we have failed. We have, oh, our priorities have been out of whack. We thank you that you, you still call us. You say, turn around. Eyes on, eyes, eyes on me as we go forward. Um, help us to do that, Lord. Empower us. Thank you for this community that, that, that works to build each other up, to point each other to you and to keep going forward. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Um, give us the courage, Lord. Increase our faith. Um, to endure the path of Jesus, the the rejection that's ahead, um, the suffering that's ahead. Um, 
may we look at the cross and that enables us to keep walking. The cross enables us to be a gospel-shaped people because that's what you've done for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.